Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. How you doing? We're back. Woo! <laughs> Guess who's back? <laughs> Josh is back <laughs> with the friend. and his friends. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Guess who's back? Guess who's back? So we have returned. Remember how fun the season was? Just huh. adding song lyrics into everything. Yeah, yeah. Were you about to sing "Lord"? No. Who? What? Who? <laughs> I thought you. I said I was going to say royalties. I thought you were going to sing royals. Oh, we'll never be royals. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't run in our blood. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, as you may have guessed from the serious, somber tone with which we've started the episode, it is an alternate week, and that means the very first season seven journal club. Yeah. Yeah. And I know what you're thinking. It's a journal club. So clearly it's going to be lighthearted and happy and delightful and definitely not going to mention the pandemic. The what? <laughs> Wouldn't it be fantastic people- if like if it was a pandemic? Like it was no longer like a scary thing. It's just like, oh, there's pandas everywhere and they're cuddly and floofy. You know, they can't really bite you and stuff. They just kind of like ong, 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 ong. <laughs> You just kind of gently be kind of gummed to death. Even though we are going to be giving you some updates in the world of COVID news, we'll try and keep it, for the most part, on the lighter side. We've got a whole season ahead to depress you or excite you. Really, it just depends how you tend to view medical news. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's... Now, Santosh, have you 
by chance had a COVID test done yet? Believe it or not, Josh, I had one all the way at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, around March, I had gotten deathly ill. I suffered a twofer during the respiratory season. I got caught with influenza A. It went around my whole family and made all of us sick and... This was despite getting the, the flu shot. I encourage everybody to absolutely get the flu shot. It probably saved me from going into the hospital. And then, boom, I got sick again right as things were peaking, like in March. And I was deadly scared because I was bed bound for like a good four or five days, just out. And I thought I had COVID because I was feeling sick as a dog and I was out. But I got a nasal swab done. And it turned out that I had a different respiratory virus called human metanumovirus, or MPV. And that one knocked me out cold. But in the midst of it, I got a, a nasal swab. I got a COVID test, and it came back negative. And uh, did that feel like it was poking your brain? Was it a pleasant feeling? <laughs> The, it wasn't too bad for me, actually. The nurse who took my COVID swab was pretty gentle, and she she had to get back there, but she didn't like kind of stuff it back and like, ah, I'm going to get you type of thing. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a way to test for COVID was almost as fast or faster than PCR and didn't involve ripping your brains out through your nose like the ancient Egyptians? <laughs> yeah, it could be... I like it as long as it was accurate. That's the main thing. We already have a suffering of like this is our gold standard right now for diagnosis. And it seems to be that it's only about uh, 80 plus percent sensitive. So we're missing. That doesn't mean you're missing 20 percent of cases, but, you know, it's not as sensitive as we would like in order to, to find cases. That's what if the one I could tell you there was a solid diagnostic marker with 75% sensitivity and 81% specificity. Is that a good test? That's not beautiful. Uh, uh, true positives over true positives plus false negatives. That's the sensitivity. So you're basically saying that how many of my positives, you know, I got a positive that was true plus the number of positives that I missed. So the, the ones that came out negative but should have turned out positive, that's a sensitivity specificity is you look at the number of true negatives and you divide that by the true negatives plus false positives. So that's saying how many of the negatives did I get out of the ones that, you know, I got all the, the true negatives plus the ones that should have come out negative, but accidentally or badly came out positive. That's the specificity. So, so both of those need to be like in the 90s range. That's and what's our current coronavirus PCR testing sensitivity and specificity? Yeah, PCR is insanely specific. It is so, so good at being specific. So the specificity for PCR has always been like 99 plus percent. But the sensitivity, unfortunately, is like 80-ish percent. If the swab is done well, meaning that they get back there. You know what I'm talking about, Josh? That they really get back there. So the diagnosis of COVID right now is primarily relying on PCR testing or polymerase chain reaction. But that does still take some time, even though it's getting faster, mm -hmm. and requires a lab equipped to carry out the reactions to result the testing. In this study, 
from September 2020, carotid CTA was used as a routine stroke investigation, but many of those images include the apex of the lungs. Yes. So the study looked at evaluating the carotid CTA as a potential marker for COVID-19, and it turned out that a pretty decent amount of patients who were being evaluated for stroke, which is unfortunately one of the more serious presentations of COVID, were noted to have ground glass opacification, which is an indicator of, or can be an indicator of infection in the lungs. So about 22% of the 225 studied had ground glass opacification. That's not the ones just diagnosed with COVID, but essentially these authors came to the conclusion that you could, in fact, if somebody was already being worked up, you right. could make the diagnosis of COVID based off that alone, and it would be much faster than waiting for a PCR test to turn around and could be carried out at any facility. However, in order to do that, you do end up sacrificing some of this sensitivity. Yes. This is this is one of the issues that we had. Now, CT of the chest is actually insanely sensitive, but nonspecific. And that was shown even over in China when the pandemic started, that you could just go in and line up a bunch of people with respiratory symptoms and look for these opacities called ground glass opacities. Ground glass, uh, Josh, you, you know you had the like the frosted glass? If, if you lived through the like the 80s and 90s, everybody instead of shower curtains had these sliding glass doors, which kind of like you could see through them, but it looked kind of fuzzy because the glass was kind of like abraded. So it looked like it was all, you know, sh um, cloudy type of thing. Yeah, it stopped small birds and children from banging their faces. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not clear, clear glass, but it's it's ground up. It's and it you could actually do it if you were uh, you know like a ratty little kid, and then you took a rock and you you know you ground up the glass like that, uh, and, and so that's ground glass. But the problem is, even though it's very sensitive. It isn't a very specific marker because there are other infections that can look like ground glass. That's the problem. But during the pandemic where you're really worried about, oh, you know, there's COVID everywhere, then it's a fairly good bet that if you see that and you have compatible symptoms, that this is what you've got, even if you don't find the actual virus. The study basically came to the conclusion that currently in the U.S. or in the UK, which is where it was carried out, this is probably not going to be terribly useful because it's more aimed at making the incidental diagnosis and people being worked up. I'm thinking it's something that may be very useful in uh, areas with fewer resources in developing countries where they may not even have labs that can do PCR testing, but they would still have a CT machine which is relatively cheap to obtain on a hospital budget. Yeah, you do have to have the space for a CT scanner. That's the only issue. And interestingly, you're right, Josh, a lot of the time now, because you don't need a lot of reagents with a CT machine. You just need space for the actual machine. 
So a lot of places, even that are considered developing countries, you will have a, a hospital or something like that for uh, CT scanning. PCR, uh, there, there's a couple of things you need. You need a machine that can do what's called the thermocycling. So basically just heating stuff up and cooling stuff down. It sounds really, really silly, but that's all you're really doing with PCR reactions is rapidly heating and cooling. But uh, another uh, issue that you need if you're doing a lot of PCR tests is A, you need the nasal swabs. You need the right type of transport media with the swabs so that you can get them over to the lab. And then you need the actual reagents, the, the mixes of stuff like primers and buffers and things like that and enzymes in order to make the PCR reaction work. While this is not going to end up being a terribly useful test for patients unless they look at it in developing countries, Interestingly, the authors did note that this could help to limit avoidable exposures of hospital staff to infected patients, and that a lot of ground glass in the lungs noted on the CT was probably a, preg- a predictor of a bad outcome, as there was a spiked risk of mortality in the month following that imaging. So there's two different things going on there. One is, if you come for a stroke or a syncopal event, a passing out event, and they scan you and they find this ground glass opacity in your lungs, you have a very high chance of having a poor outcome in the following month. But if you're part of the hospital team and you've making that diagnosis now, you can more appropriately get that person to a COVID floor and reduce the exposure of your staff who may not have all their personal protective equipment on from not coming into contact with the staff as well. So you get a little little bit of good, a little bit of bad, but it ended up being a very interesting study, even though it doesn't change a ton of management. I think that's some of the neatest stuff here is that you can use a modality which is not necessarily a virological modality, in order to make these diagnoses and aid in the the care of this so that I'll take one really interesting thing away from this actually Josh is that you can use this to uh, for instance you know you're seeing all of your patients and everything you you don't know who's got what but a radiologist can take data like this and say, oh, you know, incidentally, you have a patient who came in for a CT scan for one reason or another or an angiographic study. And on the CT or uh, I guess even on the MRI, although they didn't mention it in this case, that, hey, incidentally, I see these opacities in the lungs. I know this patient is either mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic, but you should really think about COVID here. So I think in that method, you know, that's, it's a really good finding. Moving on to our next study, we were talking a little bit before the recording started about the latest research and arguments for when to open schools. And it definitely didn't come up because you have two school-aged children who are currently in your home. (laughs) Yeah, that would be so weird if we were to just, you know, use that as a segue. I will say that right now, based on 
Uh, I was basing it on one specific study that came out of South Korea that examined transmission amongst people as they divided the index cases. So the, the, how people transmitted from one to the other. And the, the first case in each is called an index. And they looked at the index and the last case. case is called the appendix. No, stop it. <laughs> no, no, no. These are the uh, contacts. So, so seeing what, what uh, in-household and out-of-household contacts contracted COVID from the index cases, appendix cases. Oh, my God. So the the idea really was to examine which kids adults etc could transmit and they they stratified these by age and and tried to remove as many confounders as they could but the nice thing is they really examined this prospectively in the midst of when the pandemic was growing so that actually made it a lot better because you were looking at what was going on while really cases were mounting. So what they found out was something super interesting. The the kids who are really young, zero to nine, so not quite before school age, but uh, all the way from infancy to, you know, the like the very early grammar school age, these kids transmitted poorly. So they, they did a bad job of transmitting COVID. Uh, maybe that's a bad way to put it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, Shame on you, children! Yeah, Doing poor you job. Should, you should do better. So they of they did a bad disease. <laughs> we're we're not mad. We're just disappointed. disappointed. <laughs> so they did a bad job of transmitting disease. Whereas if you took one decade up, so ten to nineteen, these children in the midst of the school age were very efficient transmitters within their households. So just to tell you, uh, around 1% of kids that were very young, even if they were attending school or whatever, their transmission of COVID within households was like 1% to 2%. So 1% to 2% of their contacts came down with COVID. If you stepped up just one decade uh, in their grouping, these kids all of a sudden we're transmitting at 18%. So close to one in five of their contacts were contracting COVID from them. So very, very efficient. In fact, you didn't get back to that efficiency until you got to like 30, 40 year olds. So this was, this was a kind of an important finding. So I said, okay, little kids in small controlled environments, they can go, they can do their thing, no big deal. But my older kid, my nine-year-old, I said, sorry, kiddo, you got to stay home. Yes, you're almost a teenager, which are apparently walking disease bags. Uh, well, they're all walking disease bags, but with dis <laughs> this particular disease, it seemed that what kind of bag was better at transmitting is <laughs> was a little bit stratified by age. Now, that's changing. We are getting other data that's coming in saying that there are other groups of, you know, younger children and that kind of thing that do seem to be carrying COVID back home to their parents from school very easily. 
But what we're trying to do, and it's, it's, I think it's a really tough balance, is we're trying to balance the well-being, the mental well-being of these kids having to see their friends and everything with this really scary risk of bringing home a, a potentially deadly disease to their house. And I think that's the tension that we're working under right now. And speaking of potentially deadly diseases mm. and going back to school, several schools, as well as other gathering places, have identified a surge of Legionella in their water after it sat stagnant in the plumbing over the long periods of quarantine. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Oh, just worrying about one goddamn thing after the other, Josh. <laughs> so for those of you who have been wondering why water fountains and coolers and things like that are taped off, separate from the fact that multiple people are using them. So that's that's a whole other issue. But yeah, a lot of these water in the big buildings, things like hotels, um, not hospitals because we've been going into work, but yeah. hotels, schools. And yes, the CDC itself all came back to work to find cooling towers, water sources, and several pipes full of Legionnaire's disease. And there's currently no surveillance system for Legionella, so it's not really known whether the pandemic has increased this problem just by virtue of us all being at home, or it's because there aren't as many large gatherings. So is this a disease? Or is this part of the steps we've taken to limit the disease that have given an advantage to others? Yeah, that's a it's a really, really tough thing here. Legionella is a little you know, little little bacteria there, and it's an environmental bug. It's something that we worry about in stagnant water, just like you said. It tends to overgrow there. The reason it was called Legionnaire's disease is because there were a group of people from the Foreign Legion that got together and there was a contaminated, I believe it was a cooling system, right, Josh? It, like an air, yeah, like an air conditioning system or something like that. And this is really how this was named because that contaminated air cooling system got kind of spread out. You know, it, 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 it kind of aerosolized and, and poofed out all of this bacteria into the air. They catch it, and then it went into the lungs and caused this smoldering, yucky pneumonia. And so Legionnaire's disease, or Legionella, tends to happen in these isolated outbreaks surrounding pools of water like this one, where you either have plumbing that's been stagnant for a while uh, or pools. I will tell you, Josh, at our institution, because we have outdoor water fixtures, we have fountains and that kind of a thing. Our infection control team actually does have regular surveillance to check for the presence of Legionella in the pools. Oh, but and, Santos, you yeah. didn't tell them the best part. What oh, are the no. what are the symptoms of Legionella? <laughs> oh, that's actually that's absolutely true. So let's see if. Um, by the way, stop me if this sounds familiar. Okay, Josh. Mm-hmm. So you've got fever. Okay. You've got cough. Right. You've got shortness of breath. 
Gotcha. <laughs> All right. You don't, you have a lack of upper respiratory tract infections, meaning like no runny nose or sneezing. You've got, you've got a lack of that stuff. Okay. Coincidental. Uh, right. You've got lethargy and kind of wasting and weakness in general. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh huh. So I mean, just for so, funsies. Wait, wait, what about is, what about for funsies? Can we throw in head and muscle aches? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You 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 kind and, of feel like the flu all over, just like drained and headachey and muscle achey. Yeah, sure. What about some confusion and GI symptoms like diarrhea? You can occasionally get GI symptoms like diarrhea, not very often, but absolutely. And you know, if you get hypoxic. If you have trouble breathing, you can also have that kind of foggy brain fog where you can't quite think. Josh, so, I don't know about you, but I'm having I'm having like some chills about like how close this is to another circulating disease right now. Could it be that the symptoms of Legionnaires are really similar? Nay near identical <laughs> COVID-19 oh god which in itself shares many overlapping symptoms with the flu sure uh, which also all share some just general overall ancestral symptoms and surface very shallow things with the common cold all of which are approaching this season yeah yeah so basically, you've taken something that mimics the respiratory and GI symptoms of COVID-19. Now, I will say this. Legionnaire's disease tends to be a lot, lot, lot more lingering. So rather than the type of disease that we think about with COVID, which is fairly acute within that uh, about seven to eight or nine days after the initial infection, Legionella can linger and kind of smolder for a lot longer. But really, nobody thinks of Legionnaire's disease. It's, it's an uncommon syndrome. And so when you're worried all the time about COVID and then upcoming, you're worried about things like the flu and other respiratory virus, who's going to go looking for Legionella. A foreign disease to look for. <laughs> Legion? <laughs> it's Luckily. not a foreign disease. It was <laughs> all over the planet. Stop it now. Like, Luckily. Yeah. Well, the fix is pretty easy, both before and after. Uh, even if no water testing is done, you mainly get rid of this disinfection like chlorination can kill the microbes. So even adding just a little bit of disinfectant to or fresh water can destroy the pathogens, um, but you have to flush your water source. So yeah. going back to work or back to school or anywhere, any building that may have been closed for a period of time, Flush your water sources. This can be as simple as turning the faucet on, letting cold or hot water course through the system. You know what? Use the time to wash your hands, you filthy animal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I will say this because you don't want it to aerosolize from the water stagnant in the trap. So if you do something like that, it would be advisable to, for instance, if it's a tap, at least for the first few minutes, 
cover it with, uh, with kind of a hood, um, so that the water doesn't splash and get everywhere. It should, it should make sure that the water is kind of contained in the basin and doesn't kind of <laughs> mist everywhere and carry the bacteria with it. If you do end up getting Legionella, well, that's kind of on us or our colleagues to diagnose and give the appropriate treatment. And we're pretty well practiced at it, especially now. It would be a refreshing change to get something non-corona. <laughs> it's true. Now, I will say that, Josh, we could potentially have a good flu season this season. Uh, we can definitely talk about it as a separate thing. But yes, unfortunately, we as physicians cannot just settle in and say, oh, you know, there's a single pathogen to worry about. Just think about coronavirus. We, we do have to be very aware and work our differential diagnosis and think about other causes of illness when we're not able to properly explain the respiratory symptoms or if things are not getting better, for instance, in a patient with pneumonia. As we said, wash your hands. Oh, yeah. Animals. <laughs> and speaking of filthy animals. Yeah. Cats. <laughs> oh, my God. They carry everything. They carry everything, Josh. Dude, if, if you get enough cats in one place, you will have enough pathogens to harm an entire human population to propagate oh. these horrible flea-borne diseases like typhus, right? And then on top of everything, Josh, they're also pests. They kill so much wildlife, like little birds and rodents, and they just decimate the biodiversity of a place. Now, oh, clearly, God. we are dog people. but yeah. <laughs> because, because cats are these walking repositories of disease libraries, or can be, they require many different drugs. Sure. And now there's a study coming out of Canada. Oh, I'm sorry, Canada. <laughs> that may indicate one drug for cats might be able to treat COVID. Oh, okay. I mean, is this an antibiotic that's used in humans and cats? Or So it hasn't been tested on humans yet, or at least this specific one, but its class has. So uh, Joanne Lemieux, but I choose to pronounce it as Lemieux. <laughs> ah! Oh, you were, I mean, professor. let's be very real about this. You were going to make a pat, cat pun out of this no matter what. But it just so happened that the, the woman's name is Lemieux. So, yeah, let's let's call her Lemiao. That's fine. <laughs> so Professor Lemiao, leader in biochemistry at the University of Alberta, published the findings in Nature and Communications and the drug, cleverly named GC376, because ugh, scientists. <laughs> sure, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> is a protease inhibitor. Now, we've used protease inhibitors all the way back as far as the HIV-AIDS days, and even for hepatitis C, it's primarily used to treat feline infectious peritonitis, which is an immune-mediated disease triggered by an infection by a, drumroll please, coronavirus. 
not oh. coronavirus. Simply a, a. <laughs> and feline in- infectious peritonitis or FIP is a yeah. <laughs> problem where cats gather, uh, like shelters, pet stores, and I don't know other catteries. No, <laughs> I well, there are several categories of. <laughs> Congregational places, absolutely. Yeah. If too many get together, it could be cataclysmic. <laughs> Real catastrophe. Oh. <laughs> but back to Professor Lamiao. Yeah. <laughs> we found that this particular protease inhibitor does seem to block the replication of all viruses in the corona family, which okay. would, of course, SARS CoV 2 and infected human cells. So the preclinical testing was so promising that they're already working on getting phase three clinical trials approved because usually for most drugs, you have to be confirmed in the lab then you have to test animal models. But this drug has already been approved on animal models. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. You, you already have a model. Now, you do have to be careful with these because generally speaking, when you have a medication like this that's you know, well used in a, in an animal model, almost certainly someone has thought about how to use this in humans and there was some sort of contraindication. So you do have to be careful about finding out why exactly it wasn't previous, previously used in humans. That's right. There's a reason we don't take elephant tranquilizers. Uh, most of us. I suppose we'll have to see. Um, we'll just have to hit pause on this trial oh (laughs) Uh, well i mean it's a lot to take in but maybe we can kind of pack it into a small clause (laughs) we won't litter this story with any more puns (laughs) we can't but but instead move on to our next story which is about an even better way to try and diagnose coronavirus that doesn't involve picking your nose or having a stroke. Uh, <laughs> oh, that sounds excellent. Right? Yeah. Those are the only two ways we have to diagnose it right now. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> about? Yeah, it's, uh, t- to be very fair, it's an intranasal or nasopharyngeal PCR versus imaging. I think that's fair. What if we could have a corona breathalyzer? We have the saliva tests. And right now, those saliva tests where you just spit rather than going for a swab, essentially viruses replicate inside of cells. So you need to be able to deliver a a large enough volume of epithelial cells in order to lyse those open and run the PCR on the genome of the virus, which is inside, stuck inside. So However you deliver those cells is fantastic. We have the nasal swab. We have the spit. You can spit out a bunch of saliva and then the the cells from inside of your mouth and oropharynx can get stuck in there and you can run it on that. So this is a different one though, right? This is you blow into something. So it relies on the detection of volatile organic compounds made by the virus 
uh, exhaled in the breath, and those compounds will attach to nanoparticles on molecules in the device. So it was trained by machine learning, and you know how I feel about machines learning. And <laughs> Josh, every time this is this is humans and machines working together. If we didn't have this type of algorithmic learning, then we would be in the Stone Ages. It's really valuable, this stuff. Don't leave your Roomba unattended. <laughs> All right, fine. But to do so, to do this machine learning, they used electrical resistance signal data obtained from the breath of 49 confirmed COVID patients, 58 healthy controls, and 33 patients with lung infections that were known to be non-COVID. And these were this was all carried out in Wuhan, China. Following this, the breathalyzer device, the prototype, tested at about 76% accuracy in distinguishing COVID from controls. So about the same as our CT scan. Um, but it also showed about 95% accuracy in telling the difference between COVID cases versus other lung infections, which means if you have a lung infection, the breathalyzer will be really good at picking out if it's corona, as long as it can tell you have an infection at all. <laughs> and that's a tough thing, right? That's where the human being has to step in and decide when to use a test. We have a measure, Josh, I think you and I had this drilled into us a lot in medical school, the idea of pre-test probability and post-test probability, meaning that when you're examining which test to use to look for a particular condition, what you say to yourself is, what are really the chances of this test making a difference in how I approach this patient from here on in? So what's the pretest probability of it being positive or negative? And then post-test probability is after the result comes back, what are my chances that what I'm reading here is correct? So this is what stops us statistically from taking like a 60-year-old biological man and running a pregnancy test on him. I mean, nothing stops you from doing it. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, methically, uh, I almost said methically. <laughs> Bi biomedically and ethically, that's what I mean. Medically and ethically, you know, methically. Yeah. <laughs> you learned a lot about methically when you were out in Hawaii, actually. I told you that. Wasn't, wasn't that one of the guys with Hercules? It was Hercules. Methicles. Methicles. Yeah. And my, the, the absolute tastiest popsicles. Well, do you know? So there's one last test I want to talk about. Yeah. One other possible test. And other, not imaging and not breathalyzers but still one that relies on volatile organic compounds. Mm. And how do you feel if you went to your local corona testing facility, bent down for a breathalyzer, and you had to breathe into the face of a puppy? <laughs> I feel bad for the poor puppy. I mean, you know, if I'm sick and everything like that already, I wouldn't want to do that to the poor puppy. 
Well, these same volatile organic compounds, or VOCs... Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know me! Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) ...can cause unique and specific scent imprints, which can be detected which can be detected by trained dogs. So in this particular study, and I and we might have mentioned that some of these were being developed in a previous journal club, but in this study, eight detection dogs, so dogs already used to detecting drugs, bombs, rescue people, things like that, were trained for one week to detect saliva, or tracheal bronchial secretions, i.e. mucus, uh-huh. of corona-infected patients in a randomized, double-blinded, and controlled study. And on the whole, the dogs had a sensitivity of 82% Ooh. and a specificity of 96%. Dude, dude, that's better than PCR. <laughs> or just about as good as PCR. That's awesome. During, they were given 1,012 randomized samples, and the dogs had a detection rate of about 94%, with 157 correct indications of positive, mm-hmm. 192 correct rejections of negative, okay. and 33 incorrect indications of negative. So 33 oops or... 30 or 30 incorrect rejections of positive. So 60 of these thousand times, the dogs were like, my bad dropped the ball. Sure. The other, the other 900 something, they correctly identified people who did and did not have coronavirus. Dude, that's absolutely awesome. Now, it is. It's not a perfect kind of thing because there's. They're not, you're not blowing into the face of a dog, right? So this is really being carried out to be used for testing at large gatherings such as airports, stadiums, concerts, things like that. But I think we should take this to an extreme and just have dogs on every street corner trained who are good boys and girls to get pets and belly rubs in exchange for Corona testing. (laughs) Yeah. And this works out fairly well because uh, I I actually have to relook at this data a little bit, but I believe that dogs uh, do not easily contract this SARS-CoV-2, this particular strains of human coronavirus, so that they're fairly safe. Like, we won't be getting the doggies sick. Uh, there, I, I know there are some animal studies that were looking at transmission and acquisition of some of these diseases by other animals. Like, uh, and I, <laughs> Josh, you would have loved that study. They tested experimental infections on dogs, cats, ferrets, hedgehogs. They did a a bunch of them, which is important because, of course, this is an animal or a zoonotic virus, and there certainly was a transmission initially all the way back in Wuhan from bats to another species, probably pangolins, and then over to uh, human beings. So uh, this is super cool. It ties in beautifully with a lot of other 
diseases that we see where doggies really help sniffing volatile compounds, uh, including Clostridium difficile. See, dogs can smell C. diff pretty well, and it was tested with rotavirus as well. So this is an, yet another proof of dogs being humans' best friend. On the whole, after a two-week habituation process to the testing device, yeah, basically was like a little roulette machine that would shift where in the wheel the coronavirus sample would be. Uh-huh. The eight dogs only needed five days of training in total until the detection rate was above chance. Ooh. That is a really, really fast learning time. curve. Yeah. Yeah. That that's super we could important. Teach, we could teach our own pets at home. <laughs> I don't I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I I do have to say that a lot of these uh, dogs that go through these specialized training and these kind of things, they're kind of handpicked to be these exceptional puppies. They're, they're really amazing dogs overall. And on top of that, the rigor that it takes to test these animals is quite heavy. So it's not just like any old Well, dog. if you would like, I disagree. <laughs> okay. But if you would like to see a video of how the process worked during the training, uh, that'll be included in the show notes in our links. Awesome. Yeah. And then, so you know, you can watch that before you go to sleep and be so, so happy. And dream then about taking cat drugs to stop a disease which dogs detected. See, every pet's helping. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, or you can rate and review us wherever podcasts are found. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Santosh and Friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure, and we will be back next week with another brand new episode. And in two weeks with COVID updates, you don't need that every time. <laughs> really depressed and bored yeah we've got enough to worry about <laughs> um i want to give a shout out and say that yes i totally understand that everyone's looking for what to do with their kids and are your kids okay to go to school and all that the data is up in the air okay but if the schools are taking precautions, they're keeping class sizes small, they're protecting their uh, teachers and stuff like that, and they're keeping a close eye on symptoms, excluding kids when they need to, et cetera, et cetera, I think that the younger children especially, you know, you can go to school in a limited fashion and, you know, the, the rest – uh, we'll find out more as we come along and just a few months and we'll have a, a viable vaccine. I think it's fair to say right now. So uh, that's all opinion, opinion, but yeah. Until next time, as always, stay safe, wash your hands. And for those of you who can happy travels. Bye guys.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.